Reverend Dave Mayo comes from England. He has been in pastoral ministry for about 15 years before he was called by the Church of England to help train future ministers for the Church of England at both Ridley Hall at the University of Cambridge and also at Westcott House at the University of Cambridge. So he teaches, in essence, in both the liberal and the conservative seminaries at the University of Cambridge. Quite an accomplishment, and I'm sure an interesting tightrope to walk. To walk. I first came in contact with Dave about six years ago when he was on sabbatical in between being a pastor and being an instructor. Since then, uh, he has brought over three groups of students to the U.S. to see what's going on here and how it might inform his work in England trying to plant fresh expressions of church for a younger postmodern and post-Christian generation. His first book to gain a wide uh, notoriety and, and, and acclaim was Church Unplugged, Remodeling Church Without Losing Your Soul. And we've got a few copies of these. They'll be $10 each back at the scoop at Scum uh, after we're, we're done tonight. He's got a couple other books coming out, but he might tell you about those. One about evangelism, which I'm looking forward to, which is why I brought him here to talk to us tonight. Evangelism in the U.K. is a vastly different animal than it would be here in the U.S., primarily because only 5% of the population in England claims any kind of church affiliation. So that means on Easter and Christmas, 5% of the population goes to church. What about the rest of the time? How is the Church of England responding to that kind of an environment to proclaim Jesus to people who now have very little, if any, Christian background? I feel like looking at what they're doing and how they're doing it can help us probably more than we can help them. Because in the future, I see America becoming less and less Christian. And I see persecution, at least on an intellectual level, increasing even now. So, without further delay, let me introduce my friend and soon-to-be-yours, Dave Mayo. Um, thank you very much, Mike. It's always hard to know how to uh, introduce yourself or have other people introduce yourself. Uh, the role at uh, Ridley is one of three that I have, but actually the easiest way to introduce myself is to tell you a story. About four years ago, uh, I was sitting with two of my three children uh, watching a program. I think you have, you have it over here in an American version. Why swap? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not a kind of competition. Uh, it's a, it's a, a program where families just swap the kind of mothers, and it, you look at the dynamics of that. And I was watching it with two of my three children. And uh, two of the children in the program were complaining about their parents who were involved in local politics, saying... Uh, our parents were never at home. They're always at meetings. They're much more interested in politics than they are in us. We're always second. And uh, my wife and I had been uh, planting this church in northern England. And uh, I was sitting there with just guilt, thinking, this is exactly what my kids are thinking. You know, they were always out. They were always had meetings. They always had people around. Uh, they were always doing church stuff. And I'm getting more and more guilty and then uh, about 10 minutes of the program to go, and my son, uh, who was then about 14, turned to me and he said, do you know what, Dad? 
And I thought, oh, here it goes. This is it. He's going to say, this is exactly how we feel. And he turned to me and he said, do you know what, Dad? And I said, what is it, Callum? He said, I'm really glad you don't have a proper job. <laughs> so <clears throat> that is now how I describe myself. I am the person without a proper job. And um, I have to say that uh, back in June, I was... Um, having my kind of second honeymoon with my wife on an island in the Indian Ocean, and I was sunbathing. Rather stupidly, I had my phone with me and uh, looked and uh, got a a message via Facebook from Mike Sayers saying, uh, you're speaking at scum about what's happening in England. Uh, I'm not taking no for an answer. So uh, I'd just like to say that... um, uh, I didn't have a choice about this, so thank you very much for coming. At least you had a choice and you decided to come. Um, And I feel slightly embarrassed about it because, um, as someone said to me today from England, how come us from England are telling you anything uh, in America? And I, so I want this very much to be a conversation. I'm going to say a little bit tonight, uh, and then I want to get us talking together and learning from each other. There are five others from, uh, from Britain. Feel very free to disagree with me. Uh, you know, I, I'm not infallible at all. So very happy if you say that's rubbish. I'm not really going to tell you about the American scene. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the British scene and then let you, in a sense, do the work of saying how might this apply uh, in, the, in the situation that we're in. Uh, there aren't any simple answers to anything, uh, but one of the joys of my job is I get to go around the world. I've just been in Toronto recently and in Portland, actually, Um, And so it's great to see what's happening uh, in churches uh, and what God is at work doing in his world. Uh, And I'm very aware that America isn't the UK, and what happens to us is not necessarily going to happen here, uh, but I do think there are some similarities. Uh, I read a blog recently that said this, as we continue to lose the culture, this is an American writing, we will soon be where Europe and England are if we keep going the way they have which sounds very bad about us, doesn't it? Uh, So what I want to do just very briefly at the beginning is tell you a little bit about England. Mike has been banding about over these last five days loads of uh, figures about the English church. I don't think he's got one right so far, but um, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about it. (laughs) Um, Just also to say, these two things kind of sum up my life so far. The first, the book that I've got for sale today, Church Unplugged tells how we planted uh, this new type of church in Huddersfield, reaching 20s and 30s, people who would have no uh, identification with any church, very little knowledge of anything to do with the Christian story, and how we started that. And I was doing that for seven years, thought that that would be my life's work, and then God amazingly somehow called me into seminary uh, and uh, gave me this uh, passion for people who are planting, we use the word pioneers uh, in the UK. And so my life now is about supporting and encouraging and developing pioneers. And so the second book, which has come out fairly recently called Pioneers for Life, is a set of essays um, which I'm edited uh, around some of the issues of planting and pioneering. And then I'm just, as Mike said, I've just written this summer a book with a colleague on evangelism, uh, which will be out uh, here as well, I think, in America in March. Uh, So I'll let Mike tell you a bit about that. But anyway, let's look at the UK situation, Um, if I can get this to work now. Here we are. Okay. 
these are the figures from the UK in 2007 done by a Christian organization. Uh, they <coughs> interviewed uh, 2,000 uh, um, people, adults, and this is what they found. Uh, the percentage of the adult population who are regularly in church uh, is 15,000. The figure that Mike kind of almost got right was that on any given Sunday, 7% of the population, between 6 to 7%, are in church. But obviously, you get more than just the same. It's not the same 6 or 7% always going every Sunday. So 15% of people are regularly in church in Britain. Uh, 3% are what they call here fringe. Um, so that's people who come uh, maybe every two or three months. They might come to Christmas and Harvest and Pentecost. And then you've got 7% of people who come occasionally. And by that we mean once a year. So um, that classically would be at Christmas. So you've got there about a quarter of the population who have some contact with church. Uh, and then you've got this second group that the survey, and that we tend to use this term, de-churched. Uh, and by that, we mean people who've had contact with church in the past and have stopped going. Um, and the survey said that there are 5% who were what they called open and 28% who were, were closed. So by open, we mean people who have stopped going to church but actually almost don't know why they stopped. So classically, they might move to a new city. And they never just happened to get back in contact with the church and just stop going. But they didn't really mean to stop going. And if they found a good church or someone invited them, they would be open to going back. Uh, and then there's 28% who are closed de-church. Now, we probably know them well. They are people who know exactly why uh, they stopped going to church. And we may be some of those. So it might be the minister or they fell out with the, uh, some of the... Um, council or they didn't like the music or whatever um, and that's a, a, a big group in our country and then but then and this is where we we are different uh, I think from America is this huge group 33 percent who are what we call non-church now when I looked up the figures in America and George Barner and that kind of thing unchurched seems to mean in America have, have not been in church for the last six months when we use the term unchurched, we mean they've never, ever, ever been in church, apart from maybe the occasional wedding or funeral. So over a third of the population of Britain have never had any church contact, contact uh, in any meaningful way. And then you've got 6% other religions and then 2% unassigned. I love that in Britain. So that's 2% who refuse to answer the questions. Um, so that, that is our situation um, in Britain. And uh, the surveyor said this. This majority, and by that they meant the 66% of people who um, were not going to go to church, whatever happened. So that's the closed de-church, the non-church, other religions and other signs, really. And they wrote this. This majority presents a major challenge to churches. Most of them are unreceptive and closed to attending church. Church going is simply not on their agenda. And so what we're finding in Britain that is happening is what I call the refill factor is breaking down. The refill factor means just, you know, people will die, but then people will join the church or move into the area and come in, and through whether it's through friends, contacts, baptisms, weddings, whatever, and the church will just keep going that way. And for probably in Britain... Um, Seven, eight hundred years, that's how it's been. 
But really, since 1960, probably, that has slowly broken down. And now, um, the figures are saying, because um, the other thing that's hidden in those figures is the age profiles. So 20% of 20-year-olds have some contact with church, 40% of 40-year-olds, 60% of 60-year-olds, 80% of 80-year-olds. So most of the young people are in that unchurched part. And I saw some figures the other day that suggested that by the year 2050, 86% of the population in Britain will be unchurched. In other words, eight, eight and a half people out of 10 will never have had any contact with any church before. And that is a very different situation. And so I spend a lot of my time going around Britain just trying to say to church leaders and congregations, you are now missionaries in your own place. Yeah, we need to be sending missionaries elsewhere, but understand you are as much missionaries in Cambridge as you would be a missionary in Thailand. And you need to begin to think in that different way because the refill factor is breaking down. I like to play with the minds of, of uh, pastors that I work with. And one of the things I often say to them is, do you know, there are not, the people in your locality are not sitting at home tonight thinking, do you know what, if my church, my local church, just had a bit of better preaching, I think I might go on Sunday. And they're not at home thinking, you know what, if they only had a better band and got rid of that organ, I think I'd go on Sunday. And they're not at home thinking, oh, if only the liturgy was better or there wasn't any liturgy or whatever we might think are the important things in our church world, that won't make a difference because those people aren't thinking at all in that way. I love, some of you know I love sports. So the way I put it is basically we haven't got a home ground. Imagine the Broncos lose mile high and have to play all their games away. That is the situation that the church in Britain is coming into that all our games are being played away. And that means a very different way of thinking and of being church and of acting out church. Now, I don't think America is there at all at the moment, but it is interesting seeing the figures in America that they say that by 2050, the percentage of U.S. population attending church will almost be half of what it was in 1990. Um, it's really interesting looking at the research because the official figures suggest that church going here is about 40%. But when studies are done on that 40%, it looks more like it's probably around 20% because people say they go to church even though they're not really going to church. So it's likely by 2050 it may be down as, as low as 10%. And um, unchurched in terms of people here who are, um, who've not been in church for over six months, is now a third of the population. So you may not be exactly like Britain, but some of the similar things are happening. And uh, there are books like David Olson's The American Church in Crisis uh, and other books which talk about that. But I'm, I'm not, not here to tell you about your own situation, and uh, you can tell me lots more than that. It seems to me in Britain that there are three things that are kind of creating this situation. The first is this thing that we call secularization, and by that I mean it's just kind of where large areas of society and culture are freed from the decisive influence of religious ideas and institutions. Um, an academic uh, uh, wrote a book called The Death of Christian Britain called Callum Brown, and he said this, what is taking place 
is not merely the continued decline of organized Christianity, but the death of the culture which formally confirmed Christian identity upon the people as a whole. In other words, what he's saying is the issue is not just about the number of people going to church. The issue is actually that Britain is no longer a Christian country. And we see that in lots of ways. At the moment, there's a big case happening in Britain about the right of someone to wear a cross uh, to work. And British Airways said that they could not wear a cross to work. Uh, and that is now being taken to the European Union. There is a big discussion in Britain about what happens when the Queen dies and Prince Charles takes the throne and whether it will be a Christian service uh, and whether it won't be and whether, as there is at the moment, there should be prayers in Parliament. All these kind of things which were at the very heart of what it meant to be Britain in a way that was different, in fact, from here in America uh, is beginning to break down. And that means that at a public level, this is where I see the danger, there is no Christian discourse. And so Christianity is now seen as a private faith thing. It's okay for you to have it, but just don't bring it to work or let it affect your politics uh, or, or the way that you see the world or the way that the country should be governed. It needs to stay in the private sphere. And it's interesting how um, those involved in the kind of wanting to secularize Britain have used multiculturalism for that. Multiculturalism uh, and immigration has actually been wonderful for our church. Um, the church in London, in some areas, has grown. And the reason it's grown is because of immigrants coming in, particularly from Eastern Europe and Africa, Christians, who are coming in and starting some amazing, vibrant churches. And many of the largest churches uh, in London now uh, are um, uh, uh, black churches, black-led churches. But what I see happening very cleverly by those who have a different agenda is to say this. Look, there are lots of different faiths, so we can't give Christianity or any of the faiths a particular role. And therefore, we're not going to give any of you a role. And we see this like at Christmas now. Um, some places, Christmas is being named by di renamed in different ways because the, the, the council or the local government is saying, look, it will offend Muslims if we celebrate Christmas. Um, and yet the reality is that's completely wrong. Um, actually, the other faiths are saying uh, we are very happy for Christians to celebrate their faith because we, want, we would much rather have some faith being celebrated than no faith. Um, I used to be chaplain to uh, Huddersfield Town, which you won't have heard of them, but they are the greatest football team in England. Um, no, much better than Manchester United or any team you might have heard of. Um, and... For quite a long time, one of the key people in the club kept us out because she said, well, there are people involved in the club from other backgrounds, and it's not right that we just have a Christian chaplain. And we managed to kind of get our way in, and we even had the first year a carol service uh, for the club. And lots of people came to this, and we did a full carol service uh, with a talk and everything. Who was the first person up to say thank you for that. It was a Muslim parent who was just happy that faith was being seen in this place. So uh, one of the dangers, I think, is that people use that uh, for the secularization argument. Second thing is the growth, though, 
in spirituality. One of the things that even British people have bought from the media is that there is a rise in atheism. There is no rise in atheism. If you look at the figures for the rise in atheism, it does not exist. Atheism has become much more organized through Richard Dawkins and Hitchens and others, and you hear more about them. But don't think that uh, Britain, certainly, and I imagine America, is any way more atheistic. Uh, All our figures suggest uh, that that is not true. There is no rise in the number of atheists. But what has happened is this. Uh, A sociologist in Britain called Grace Davey, who's done a lot of work in this area of spirituality, says this. We live in a society in which belief is drifting away from orthodoxy to no one knows where, in which belief is floating disconnected without an anchor. And the big change is that the local church is no longer the only outlet for spiritual growth. It's very interesting. In Britain, uh, the question asked, uh, do you believe in God, is still the answer is about the same in terms of percentage, about 70% of the population. But when you start to ask questions about what do you mean by God and what does belief look like, that has changed dramatically. And therefore, people are just as spiritual... But what they mean about that and how that operates and how um, that works in their lives will just be how they, they kind of work it out and how it fits around. So there is a real kind of spiritual world out there. But the sad thing is they don't think the church is providing it. I saw some research that um, the Christian Research Association did in Britain in 2004 where they asked people whether they, were, whether they felt over the last year they had been spiritually searching. And um, they, they asked a, very, a number of very clever cl- questions to kind of find this out. And it, they discovered that 73% of the adult population within that last year had been spiritually searching. They then asked them the subsequent question, had you found in that search that the Bible, church, or prayer was in any way useful? What was amazing was that for those people who were unchurched, that question had never figured in their mind. That's what surprised the researchers. It wasn't that people had said, yeah, I thought about reading the Bible or praying or going to church, but I decided I wouldn't. It just never even entered their head that that might be a helpful thing for the spiritual church. And I think one of the, uh, in a sense... um, challenges and condemnations of our church in Britain is the fact that people who are looking for spiritual answers don't think the church is likely to provide them. Okay, the third one is this whole thing of consumerism. And in many ways, this is now the most rampant faith in our country. Maybe a bit like you, our shopping malls are built to look like cathedrals. And Ikea is doing much better uh, than any church uh, that I know. And that is because consumerism isn't just about shopping. It is, a, it is a faith because it offers a life, a lifestyle, fulfillment, and happiness. You know, why do I need God when I've got a BMW? That's the kind of faith that we're up against. And I think in many ways that's the biggest challenge because consumerism is often at the heart of church life as well, isn't it? It's not just out there, it is in here, you know. So often I meet people who say, oh, I'm, I'm changing church because I'm not getting anything from it. 
You know, it's that kind of mentality of my washing machine's not working well, I'll get a new one. My church doesn't suit me, I'll get a new one. I'm not, getting what, I'm not being fed, I'm not getting what I want. But out there in the world, I think that consumerism is probably, in Britain, the biggest faith at the moment. And the church, we need to be thinking about how we connect with it and what we do about it and how we work in and through it. So, I'm going to give us a bit of time to talk in a minute before I say uh, a little bit more. But I just want to start by talking about six um, kind of things that we're discovering in the middle of this new missionary situation. Because to us, it is completely new. In 1960, it wasn't like this. Uh, There weren't this amount of unchurched people and people not uh, refilling the pews of local churches. So these are the six things we've been discovering. The first is this. Public worship probably isn't the best starting point. If you start a new kind of service, you will attract uh, de-churched people who are looking for a better product than they left behind. But you're not going to connect with the 33% of people and growing who are unchurched. Actually, what connects with them, we're discovering, is relationships and community. You know this well at SCUM. Um, And that leads to evangelism and discipleship, and that leads to public worship. It doesn't mean that prayer isn't going on and that kind of thing. Let me give you an example. In uh, Liverpool, there was a... The Methodist church uh, basically had no church in the center of Liverpool anymore. They were all gone. And they sent a lady uh, minister to see if she could plant something right in the center of Liverpool in this new uh, missionary situation, not to attract people from other churches, but to attract unchurched people. She spent a year walking around the city center uh, getting to know people. And then she hired a room above a shop, and she put some ovens in, and she started on a Tuesday and a Thursday baking bread and asking people to come in and bake bread with her. They then ate the bread around a meal uh, after they baked it on a Tuesday and a Thursday, and any bread they didn't use, they gave away to people uh, on the street. She started with a small team, and then through this baking of bread, they began to develop a community. They began to get to know each other and shop, uh, swap their stories. Um, they began to pray for people. They began to read the Bible with them, all the things that we know. And then it wasn't until probably four years later that they began something that looked like what we might call public worship. And we are finding that that is the kind of pattern that really does work if you want to connect with people way outside the church. I've got a slightly simpler way of doing it. I, I call it love, relate, create. Because it's got to start, hasn't it, with loving people because we're loved by God. And that love always sends us out. It sent the sun out. It sends us out. And love always means that we relate with people, whether it's on our street, in our community, through organizations we're involved. But actually, if we're really loving them, we're always asking the question, how, as I'm building this relationship, can I create something which would enable these people to meet with Jesus as I have met with Jesus? Because what I see in Britain is exactly the opposite. It's, re- it's create, relate, and love. In other words, you know, people ring me up and say, Dave, we want to start a new kind of service. And so you go and talk with them. They'll, you know, particularly, we want, to, we want a service to reach young people or families or whatever. 
And then they think, well, we're gonna, we want to create that, so now we've got to relate to some people because we've got to get them to this meeting. And when they start coming, they think, oh, they've come with all these issues and problems, and now we've got to start loving them uh, as well. And one of the things I see in Britain very much is um, a real danger of uh, just tran- what we call transfer growth. So I, I could give you real-life examples. I won't, partly because I'm probably being recorded, uh, of, in the media where there are great stories of church growth. But when you ask the question, how many of those people are from outside the church, it is a very, very different story. A friend of mine was saying that he went to uh, a big uh, meeting of church planters, and this particular church planter was being lauders, and they was from the front, they were really saying, why can't you all be like this guy? Look, the church, growth in his church is amazing. And when my friend talked to him, I said, how many people are now coming to your church who weren't part of a church before that, who were unchurched? And the answer was no, none, not one single person. And that's just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, isn't it? It really is. That's not what we're called to do as missionaries. We are called, it seems, in our country to reach those people in that 33%. Second thing we're, we're discovering is there is no return address. And by that I mean we're not bringing them back to church as it always has been. We are asking these kind of contextual questions of, what does church look like in those circumstances? What does church look like in central Liverpool amongst people who are struggling and homeless and uh, with alcohol issues and drug issues? That's what um, uh, the lady was asking as she began that whole thing. And it's not going to look like the church in the suburbs of Liverpool or in the countryside. It's not about kind of mass photocopying of a successful model. That's one of the, the dreadful things that we've done in Britain. Um, is, you know, you hear about this new great model. Well, let's do church like that. I have to say, occasionally, those are American models that come over. Um, And we're learning, actually, church is going to look different in every place because it's about the context of where it is. seems to me one of the stories I love in the Bible is Peter and Cornelius and that kind of change that happens there. And it seems to me at that moment in Acts 10, Peter begins to realize there is no return address. We're not going to go back to be like the church in Jerusalem at Pentecost. It's going to look different in the Gentile world. Okay, thirdly thing we're listening is, uh, learning is mission shapes the church, not the church shapes the mission. A guy called D- Tim Dearborn in Britain said this, it's not the church of God that has a mission, but the God of mission who has a church. And we're beginning to realize that is a really important distinction. It's not about us as a church thinking, well, how are we now going to do a mission? We need to get someone in or do it ourselves or whatever. But actually asking a much more fundamental question, what is it that the God of mission is doing in our locality? And how are we to be involved in that? It's about the fact that actually it starts with planting the gospel and then growing a church. And that means that it's unexpected. It's not going to work out how we thought it might. It's about listening to God. It's about praying. One of the things I've been thinking about this summer is um, strategy in the book of Acts. And I realize there's actually not a lot of strategy. 
uh, you know, when Paul is converted, no, there, it doesn't seem to me there was a group who sat down and said, what we could really do with is getting Paul converted, and that would make a huge difference to the life of the church. The issue was, God just did that, but the issue was, what do we now do about this? Suddenly, this guy who was our persecutor is now saying he's one of us. What are we going to do? And the poor guy gets sent to talk to him, and then Barnabas Barnabas becomes his supporter. And that seems to me is what mission is often about. It is seeing what God is doing. Who's God bringing to our doors? What's happening in our communities? And how is he causing us to respond? I love these words of a British theologian, John V. Taylor, in his book, The Go-Between God, about the Holy Spirit, who says this, Mission is often described as if it were a planned extension of an old building. But in fact, it has usually been more like an unexpected explosion. Okay, fourthly, sing the old lyrics with a new tune. That's one of the things we're learning. I love these words of Picasso. If you want to um, preserve tradition, don't wear your grandfather's hat. Have grandchildren. And there is something, particularly in the kind of British tradition, that says, well, we know what church is like, and it must always stay like that. You know, it must always be in this kind of building, and it must always be on a Sunday, and it must always be at 10.30, and it must always have pews and someone at the front and all these kind of things. But actually we're realizing there's something about both change and continuity, which is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of Christ himself and the incarnation. And we see it through the book of Acts, that sense of the continuity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the change as it moves from Jews to Gentiles. I love these words of of actually of a Roman Catholic theologian, Gerald Arbuckle, who says this, it's not about leaving the tradition, but it's driving to its very heart. One of the accusations that I often gets leveled against me and others doing similar things is, oh, you're just trying to be trendy and relevant and all that kind of thing. I don't, I don't think that's what it is about at all. It is about saying, actually, what is at the heart of our tradition, both as Christians and maybe in our individual denominations, and what does that look like in 2012 in the particular context in which I now find myself? And that's why in Britain we use this term. We used to talk about new ways of being church. And then we realized there is no new way of being church. And so we use this term fresh expression of church because in every generation we are called by God to freshly express what church means and what church looks like. So I think God in Britain is calling us to sing the old lyrics but with a new tune. Uh, Henry Matisse, the the artist, said this. I think often it is more like an artist than it is a scientist. To look at something as though we have never seen it before requires great courage. And that's, I think, what we're being called to do in Britain. Okay, fifthly, uh, this might change us. I think one of the things that we think often in Britain is about changing our country. But often in doing that... We are changed uh, by God. Um, There are some very famous words. You may have seen them by um, an American, uh, again, Catholic uh, missionary, Vincent Donovan. Anyone read his book here, Christianity Rediscovered? One or two? Um, Really worth reading about his work as a missionary with the Maasai tribe. 
When he came back to America, um, a young American, uh, he was asked about how would you reach the young people of America. And a young American actually said these words to him. Uh, Do not try to call them back to where they were, and do not try to call them to where you are, beautiful as that place may seem to you. You must have the courage to go with them to a place that neither you nor they have been before. And it's it's such a lovely quote, and I found in Huddersfield it was so true, that we're not called just to leave people where they are. They, They need and we need the gospel. And we can't just say, look, this is church, come to it and lump it. But actually we are called, we are being changed in this process by them. We are being uh, saved in this process of sanctification as much as they are in this process. And actually, they will have things to teach us and to change us. And then finally, I'm not going to really talk about this bit, but there is a whole thing about what kind of leaders do we need for this kind of church. And that's one of the reasons why I'm involved in seminary training What does it look like to be missionary leaders? And what kind of training do we need uh, for those kind of people? So public worship probably isn't the best starting place we're discovering. There isn't a return address. We're not going back to an old type of church that is the golden days. Mission shapes the church, not vice versa. We've got to sing the old lyrics with a new tune. This might change us and what kind of leadership we need. Now, I've got a few other things to say, but I've said more than enough. I will hopefully say some of those a bit later, but I want us to have a chance. So what I suggest you do is turn to the person near you uh, in twos and threes and just say what struck you from the things I've been saying, either things that you agree with or very happy if you disagree with them, and then we can have a bit of a conversation. I'd be really interested if interested to hear from you does this chime in with this with your situation how's it different how's it not so so that i can learn from you as well so would you just talk to each other for three or four minutes and then we'll come back to each other talk about what particularly struck you well sounds like you've got a few things to say i thought you've been talking about what was good on television last night um So what I'd love to hear is it might be questions you've got, it might be something you want to say, it might be how you think this relates in your context, and I'd love to hear that and learn learn from you. So um, who wants to kick us off and uh, say either what you've been thinking about or asking? You could be British or American to do this. The Brits won't ask the first question, let me promise you that, so... Or the first thing you want to say, Craig, I'm nervous. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. And I think, um, in a sense, tradition is no bad thing. I think one of the dangers is we always think traditions are somehow, is the same as traditionalism, and that is different. Traditions are actually good things, and we have them in our families and in our society and our culture. So I don't think necessarily traditions are bad things, and they, ha- they actually help, help to glue a culture and a society and a community uh, together. But I think it's, uh, the, the key thing is that driving to the heart of the tradition, of asking why have we got that tradition and what might it look like 12, in 12 years' time. 
um, and how are we continuing to be open to change to what God might be doing. I mean, I, 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 always, I still love, and I keep coming back time and time again to that story of, of Peter and, Cornel, and Cornelius, partly because I think, you know, Peter and the day of Pentecost and three people, 3,000 people come to faith. You know, you are thinking at that point, you and the disciples, you know, we've now got the curriculum, the DVDs, and the course. You know, this is just, we know what we're doing now. Um, mega church, here we come. And suddenly, you know, I think it's only eight years later, God turns this whole thing upside down. Um, and so I think it is both recognizing that traditions are important, but recognizing that God might break in in ways that we're not expecting. And where are we listening for those things that are saying change? I think the other thing that um, one of the things we often talk about is that uh, change is an important part of growth. And uh, we just we need to recognize that, uh, that if you look at any organization, uh, change is an important part of growth. And often the danger with uh, churches is they only start to change when things start to go wrong. And I think the, the, the important thing is to actually bring in change when things are going well to help stimulate further change. Really important. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I think that's good analysis of it. Yeah. I think... Um, in many ways, we've, we've kind of gone past that, um, that whole thing. And there is, you know, as you know very well here, suspicion of institutions and traditions generally anyway. Um, and I think it is, you know, it's then how as churches do we enable, as I said, I think the saddest thing for me is that there are, it's not that Britain's become any less spiritual of a place. All the surveys, if you look at how much people are praying, um, that kind of thing. There isn't, they're not declining, it's going up. Um, it's just that actually they don't think the church has got anything to say uh, in that area. And that's, to me, is not a condemnation of them. It is a condemnation of us as the church, really, that, that people don't think we might have anything to say on this. Yep. Um, I think that... Um, when I became a Christian, the message that I received was, uh, Jesus is great, but we're really sorry about the church, but it goes along with it. I don't think that's the message of the Bible. I really do think the message of the Bible is, church is great because it is the body of Christ, and you cannot separate the two things out. Now, I know in society why that happens, and even in the church, but I think one of the calls on us is to put the two back together. You know, we, we might use the word community or whatever, but I, I just think when you look at the New Testament, the high value that's put on church, and we need to be careful that we don't, um, because of the institution in a sense, lose it. It's one of the things I think over the last 20 years I've changed. My kind of love for the church has really, really grown, not for a particular denomination or institution, but for Christ church and seeing how important the church is to Christ. And it is at the center of God's plans for his creation. You know, it's not an add-on, uh, which is the way the gospel was really presented to me. It is at the heart of what it means uh, to belong to Christ, which is why that so often in most of the New Testament, um, you know, that the writings are not to individuals. What does this mean for me? They are written to churches. 
Um, and that is, we just need to get better. I think it's one of the dangers of our individualism as Britain and America that we've lost that sense that uh, actually the gospel is, is not just about transforming me as an individual, though it is. It is about the, the birth of a new community, which is, that, which is then, as Paul would tell us, the pointer to the new creation that is to come. And we, I think, you know, as I said, need to understand the kind of how highly God sees the body of Christ. So, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, Leonor. There's something about the prodigal daughter or son in that, isn't there, in a sense? A bit of that going away and being brought back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing for us is that 33% were never there. So, it's not, so that's the change for us. But there's that 28. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've necessarily got a, a straight answer to that, Keegan, but I think you kind of bring out a number of really helpful points. I mean, I think I'll come on to this at, just at the end, but I, th- I think in our country the biggest issue that we're facing is this area of discipleship. And we don't know what it is because in a Christian society, discipleship was, in a sense, socialization. It was helping people to know how to behave in church. And you look at most discipleship courses, and that's what they are. How, you know, what about communion or Bible reading or prayer or spiritual gifts? They're all really important. I, don't get me wrong on that. But they're not everything about the Christian faith because it is about the whole of our lives. So I think we're really grappling with what does it look like to be a disciple because I think you're right. If actually we, the church is full of genuine disciples, and we're all going to be struggling in that, but trying to be genuine, then that will transform everything. And so often, I think, in the past, probably in both our cultures, we've seen discipleship either as something about attendance, so you're a keen Christian because you go twice on a Sunday and you come to the prayer meeting and the small group, or it's about activity. You know, I'm in this group, I do this, I'm in... The, And actually, those are important things, but I think there is a lot more to discipleship. And it seems to me that if we really are beginning, and we're trying to grapple with this in Britain, what does that look like? And it's interesting, when you go back to the early church tradition, discipleship was actually about what does it mean to be human? Um, One of the first kind of church fathers, French one, said, you know, the glory of God is a human fully alive. And I think we're beginning to grapple, what does that look like and what does that mean? And you can't do that on your own. There's something there about community with that as well. It's not a, an individual pursuit. And I, I, think, um, I think we don't know the answers, but I think that is a real challenge because I think if that happens, people will see the body of Christ in the way that, that they should see it. I think on the second, the kind of public area of Christianity... The danger is that, I mean, I think there are two dangers. One is that the public face turns so many people off. The other danger is that anything Christian is kept out of the public discourse whatsoever. And so it just fades from people's memories and thoughts. And what we are also finding in Britain because of this 33% is vocabulary. How do you explain the gospel to people who have no Christian vocabulary? So the words that we use, like salvation and saving your souls and dying on the... Just what do those mean? And how do we begin to 
develop a vocabulary which is going to connect with those people on an individual uh, level and at that kind of public level as it impacts, you know, our government, our politics, our world, uh, our communities. And how do we show that Christ is not just for what happens on a Sunday, but actually God is the God of the whole world and interested in, in, in all the parts of our lives? I think, again, it's something we're really grappling with, and the danger is that those secularizing tendencies in the country want to take us out from that so that we have no voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's something we, we're always going to live with. I think the other thing is that we, on the other side, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, and I think it is that, you know, there is that danger that so often we just look like hypocrites. Um, and I think that is a, a battle. And, and it goes back, I suppose, that thing I was saying about this is going to change us. And, and it's helping people in other churches to see that as well, that, that actually the gospel is not just about getting it to people out there. It is about getting it in here for all of us. And, I, I mean, I struggle with that. I, you know, I'm a hypocrite at times. Um, and, but I think you're right. And I think that's why, as I said, I think it is about discipleship is very much at the heart. You know, it is interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' last words, the Great Commission, Um, that the emphasis of that is discipleship. Um, That's the verb that controls the whole of the sentence. It it isn't. The the sentence doesn't say, go as the command. It says, make disciples is the command. It's not a very good translation we have. And and literally it says, in your going, make disciples. And it's just that simple sense that as Jesus work with these three these 12 people and develop them and enable them to see God and change their lives and then left them to do the same with the next lot I mean it's just that is the pattern of what it should be like it's not about attending or activity ultimately it is about that discipleship relationship with God and being with him and being like him so yeah yeah no, I agree I see and yeah Yes. No, I think, um, I think we're very aware of the, the kind of how the church is seen. And I'll come back to the end. Um, but I think there is a real desire to make some difference about that and to be, for the church to be seen in a much more positive light, which is beginning at that kind of grassroots level um, and is having a, beginning to have a bit of impact, really. Yeah, I think leaders are understanding that. Yeah. Um, it's one of the big things I talk about with people is um, you just need to think about, we talk about whether it is, whether you're trying to reach people like you and whether you're trying to reach people from a position of strength or a position of weakness in a sense. So the position of strength would be to say, we've got loads of people in their 20s, we're going to try and reach more of those people. A position of weakness would be where you're saying, we haven't got anyone in those kind of age groups. We're going to try and reach them. And I think the only, I mean, in the end, you've got to be searching for what God is calling you to do, not necessarily what your strategy is. And I think the key thing is understanding if you're, if you're working with people like you, it's going to be much quicker. The thing we say in Britain now is that to plant something new is probably going to take you 10 years. When I started the net, I was given three years. Uh, Then they started to talk about five, then seven. We're now talking, in Britain this is, ten years to plant something like this that might become in any way viable. 
And the important thing then about that is what, that, that says some really important thing about resources and commitment um, and that this isn't going to be a quick thing. This is, you know, in the same way, so I often say to people, my uh, in-laws are um, kind of three generations of missionaries with OMF in, um, in Thailand. When you go as a missionary to Thailand, you spend two years just learning the language before you do anything that we would call missionary work. And I think in the same way, that's often what needs to happen. Actually, churches need to learn the language of their local culture. It's going to take time of listening and being there and spending time. Um, and therefore, in our culture, this is a long-term project. That's what I say. If you're just interested in bums on seats, do you use that phrase here? Obviously not, then. <laughs> bums on seats. No? Yep. Warm body. Okay, yeah, we would say bums on seats. If, if you just, you know, we, we need more people because the church is about to close. That is not the right reason. You know, there is much more of a theology of mission than getting people in because you need more finances and more warm bodies. But just recognize that this is going to take a long time um, and it's going to take a good deal uh, of commitment for that to really kind of happen. I think that's the kind of the key blinds. And so what does that mean for the church leadership and the council and their expectations when they say after six months, oh, we haven't got 30 new people, so we're going to close this down. Um, actually, this is, this is going to be a much longer process. Yeah, you've done well. Let me just finish then with three things, and we can, I'm happy to carry on talking afterwards. But these are the kind of three encouragements that I'm seeing, uh, not just in the UK, but as I go around kind of Australia and America and Canada. These are the kind of three things I'm seeing happening uh, in response to a lot of this. Oh, we've just had that. The first is this, a, a missional re-engagement with society, a recognizing that, and you know this really well at school, I'm not telling you anything new, that it's, um, if people aren't going to come to us, then we need to go to them. And how do we connect with people uh, where they are? I mean, one of the great ways we're finding in the UK is this thing called street pastors, which I think you have a bit here, but we've had some real issues in city centres and town centres with nightclubs and uh, people coming out getting drunk and fights and drugs, and the churches are working together in, in these centres uh, to be there just to support and help people who are drunk and help them get home, look after people, protect people, work with the police and uh, bouncers on the doors. Uh, and it is just changing... Uh, the churches, going back to the question earlier, uh, impact with the local councillors and the local police because suddenly the church aren't just there on a Sunday tutting about the mess outside. Uh, they are out there on a Saturday night at 2 a.m. mopping up sick and uh, providing footwear for people who are walking on broken glass because they've lost their shoes and all that kind of thing. Uh, real change. Work in schools and beginning to see how um, actually church can be formed in school situations. Uh, prayer on the streets. Lots of different re ways. Um, I've got some friends in Cambridge who do these things called pastors on the sofa, where they literally take a sofa, big sofa uh, into the shopping mall and just have, be there and have space for people to come and chat to them. Because uh, people don't know who they are. Who you know, if they have spiritual questions, they have no idea where to go, and they wouldn't know how to get in the church, but there they are in the local shopping mall on a Friday morning. Okay, secondly, a reimagination of what church is and what it might become. 
Because I suppose the big difference for us in the UK is that we're not saying in the missional re-engagement we need then to get them back to church as we've got it now. We're asking something more, much more radical, which is, okay, once we're out there on the streets or in the schools, what might church look like in these kind of places? So we're seeing things starting like knitting church or pub church or surfers church or sports church, all these kind of contexts where church is beginning. I said the easiest way to explain it is in Britain. Do you have groups in churches called mums and toddlers or do you call them something else? Yeah, yeah. What do you call them? Mams. Mops. Mops. Okay. Um, That used to be the name of my hairdressers, Mops. Um, When I was kind of in church leadership in more traditional church, the question would be how many of those people are now coming on a Sunday? And that's whether it's successful or not. The question that we're beginning to ask now is how could that group on a Wednesday afternoon become church? It's not at the moment church. Let's be honest. It's just a group of mums with their children and, or carers getting together. And what would it need to have to be church? And one of the questions I think which is exciting for me theologically is we're asking, probably after 500 years, the last time we've asked this question, well, what is church? And so often we've kind of defined it by practices and the things that we do, whereas actually I think much more church is about relationships, our relationship with God, with each other, uh, with the world, and with the rest of this thing that we call church. Yeah, yeah. No, I love, I had to bring in my boss, the Archbishop of Canterbury, into this. He says this. He is a superb theologian. He said this, where Jesus is, there is the church, which is actually one of the oldest ever definitions of the church, going back to the second century. He goes on to say, the church is the assembly of those who are finding their, their relationships, their lives, transformed by the presence of God. It's amazing, isn't it? Here's an, the leader of the Episcopal Church not talking about the Eucharist or church buildings or services or robes. Or, he's talking about relationships, transformation, and God. And One of the great things I like about it, I talked to one of uh, my old students um, a few years ago. I remember her saying she'd started something in her local school for some of the the parents. And she said to me, uh, after six months, have I started a church day? It's a great question to ask. Have have I now gone and started a church? And, And the other question she asked me then is, is this my church? Brilliant questions to be asking and to really be thinking through. As I said, I I think church is about coming home to God. It's about moving towards each other. It's about moving forwards into God's world and with the rest of the church. If you know anything about the marks of the church, you'll see that as part of it. But this is seeing it in much more relational ways. And then lastly, this whole thing about a reorientation towards whole life discipleship, not what I call church discipleship. Uh, Graham Cray, bishop in, in, uh, in Britain, says this, if you're not part of a mutually discipling community, the, the culture will disciple you. And I think we're naive sometimes when we think that if we're not discipling people, then there's nothing happening. It's a kind of neutral environment. But particularly our consumer culture is always discipling people. 
the whole t- every time you go into the shopping mall, you are being discipled by the posters and the images that say, this is how you could be. This is the kind of life that you could have. And you can see the leaders, the kind of celebrities who are there, and the image is saying to you, you could be like them if only you buy this product or drive this car or uh, support this kind of cause or whatever. And it's fascinating in Britain that in different places of the church, a kind of high church movement, evangelical, charismatic, in all these places, there's a real renewed emphasis on small groups, on accountability, on whole life discipleship. And I think it's really important that we understand as well that this isn't something that just happens after evangelism. Um, I love these words of Dallas Willard. Many of you have probably read the book Divine Conspiracy. Have you? you? Know that? Yep, some of you. Great. He says this, we would intend to make disciples and let converts happen rather than intending to make converts and let discipleship happen. I found that really fascinating and challenging when I read it over the summer. And if you read my book on evangelism, you'll see more about this. But it is that thing, actually, if we are really being disciples of Christ with each other, we won't need to worry about doing evangelism. That's why I think in the New Testament there isn't a lot about uh, the church being told to go and do evangelism. They're told to live out their lives with each other in Christ and do discipleship, and evangelism will naturally happen. Because this whole thing is not about just about what we do, but it's how we do it. You think about the Beatitudes, it's very much about that. It's Jesus saying it's not just about don't do this. It is about the attitude in which you don't do it. And that's the key of what it means, I think, to be a disciple. Um, two questions that Willard asked that I think if I was planting a church, I may well start with as my two questions. What kind of people are we called to be? And what kind of community is capable of raising people like that? They're great questions as we think about what it means to be disciple. So, I want to finish with a nice story from the UK. Um, This is a true story that happened, uh, I think, now about two and a half years ago. And uh, there's a map of kind of half of Britain at the bottom. And this is a true story. They've never released the man's name. So I can't tell you his name. But he decided that he was going to sail from Kent, which is the kind of far on the right, around the coast to see where that little island at the bottom is, just north of there, a big port called Southampton. But he'd never, ever sailed a boat before in his whole life. So he got out a road map to work out how far it was. And then he got out, he worked out how much petrol it would take in his car, and he put the same amount of diesel into the boat. Then he worked out, obviously, that if you came out of where he was in Kent and turned right and hugged the coast, he would get to the port. The trouble was, as this map shows, when he came out, he didn't realize there was a small island at the mouth of the river. So he came out, turned right, hugged the coast, and found he was going round and round an island, but he didn't realize that. And he went round this island of Sheppey five times before he ran out of fuel. The Coast Guard had to come and rescue him and said to him that next time they advised he go by train. 
the, the only reason that I tell that, well, part of the reason is I love the story. But the second thing is I think in Britain, certainly, that actually God is saying to us to stop hugging the coast and to set out into the deep waters. I think that's the challenge that God has given us. We know the familiar waters. We know how to hug the coast. But actually to set out into the deep waters is where God is calling us to be. And uh, for the sake of his gospel, for the sake of our nations, uh, and for the sake of his glory. So thank you very much. You've, done, you've been a brilliant audience. And thank you for your, um, <laughs> for your participation. Um, I'd love to talk more. If you want to buy a book, as I said, it, it's not just the story of Huddersfield, but it kind of lays out then ten key things you need to think about if you're going to start anything new. Uh, let me pray for us uh, as we close. And I think Mike's going to say something. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for so much for these people here. Uh, thank you for your amazing love for us. And, uh, Lord, how your love always sends us out. Uh, Lord, just renew our heart for you and uh, keep us close to you and sent out by you. And, Lord, in our different situations and our different contexts, give us ears to hear what you are saying to us uh, about your mission and about your gospel that we might be faithful to you and faithful to our world. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.